and he must direct it, take over responsibility for himself. Odd now to think how he had dreaded going to the open prison, although it was a necessary step to his ultimate release. Until then, in each of the different prisons where he had been held, he had had a cell to himself, and so a degree of privacy. He had known that at the open prison he would have to sleep in a dormitory until it was his turn to be given a room. The experience had been a real shock, the long months of waiting a further test of endurance. But gradually the rest of the program had begun to take effect. He had responded to the new routine and to the environment. Slowly, the man buried inside the docile prisoner had begun to come alive. And next week, he would have a home. Ivy Lodge at Fairbridge had been his widowed mother's house. When, more than seven years ago, she was killed in a car accident after visiting Stephen in Wormwood Scrubs, he had wanted Frank Jeffries, his solicitor and friend, to sell it. At that time, Stephen had felt that he would never again live anywhere but in a cell. We can't tell how long you'll be inside, Frank had said. So much would depend on reports and assessments, on how Stephen weathered his incarceration, and ultimately on the opinions of review boards. Property will appreciate. Eventually you'll want somewhere to live, and that will be the time to sell it, when you've decided where you want to go, and what you're going to do. Meanwhile, you'll be getting the rent, and your capital will be protected. Frank had been proved right. While Stephen was detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, house prices soared, and now he had no immediate financial worries. His probation officer had accepted his wish to spend the first weeks attending to what must be done to put the house straight after its years of occupation by tenants. Then he intended to set up on his own, he had said. Before his arrest, Stephen had been a management consultant, and he had used a lot of his time in prison to study. He had improved his French and learned German, and had added a degree from the Open University to his other qualifications. He might start an export business, he thought, or go in for computer systems. But he need not decide just yet. There was something else he had to do first. Frank had not approved of his plan to live in Ivy Lodge as soon as it was empty. You could have a hard time, Frank had warned, recommending selling it at once. It needed only one chance word to bring the case to mind. He imagined broken windows, obscene telephone calls, anonymous letters, all the things that had happened after Marcia's disappearance and before Stephen's arrest. Society had grown more violent since then. Stephen might be physically attacked. I've learned to live without friends, Stephen had said. I'll manage. The tenants would be out on Monday at midday. Then, using it as a base, Stephen could begin his search for Ruth and the child. Frank had visited Stephen regularly over the years, the only person to do so after the death of his mother. On his earlier leave, Frank had driven him to Rawhampton, where Mr. and Mrs. Collins, his hosts, lived in a semi-detached house in a pleasant suburb. Frank had been unhappy because Stephen was not spending his leave with him and his wife. I understand, Stephen had said, aware that Frank's wife Val, whom he had met and married after the trial, would not wish a convicted murderer to cross her threshold. Frank had wanted to pick him up today and drive him over, but Stephen had refused to let him. I'm quite used to things now, he had said. I must stand on my own feet. There was still a great deal he must adjust to in the everyday world Stephen knew, and he had better begin at once.
He caught the bus from the station, uncertain of the exact fare and holding several coins in his hand. You dealt only in very small sums in prison, and he knew he would have some shocks at the actual cost of living. He had seen that when, escorted by a prison officer, he had shopped for some clothes for his job. A worse shock had been the green hair and shaved heads of the first punks he had seen, much more vivid in the flesh than in newspaper shots or on television. As he sat in the bus, Stephen thought about Ruth. She would certainly not have told the child who her father was. She would want to protect her. That was why he had never heard from her since it had happened. A check he had sent her before his arrest had not been presented, and after the trial, when, through Frank, he had attempted again to send her money, she had moved. He had left it then. In reports of the case, she was referred to as the unknown mistress, and cited as the motive for the murder. Naturally, she wanted to have nothing more to do with him. He meant to find her. Mrs. Collins must have been watching for him, for as he walked up the short path between bright dahlias and dwarf Michaelmas daisies, the front door opened. Ah, there you are, Stephen, she said, plump and smiling, but brawny too, and, he knew, trained in the art of self-defense. Mr. Collins had taken care to tell him that on his first visit. To Stephen, it seemed a wise precaution, since their guests had led checkered lives. When they were younger, the Collinses had fostered a number of children sent into care. Now they hoped to rehabilitate some of those considered not too far gone for redemption, and were sometimes successful. Come along in. The kettle's on and you'd like some tea, Mrs. Collins told him. She took Stephen into the kitchen and asked him about the journey while he drank his tea. He wished that she had thought of coffee. Stephen mentioned the golf course. You should have a game, said Mrs. Collins. But who with? Reg doesn't play. I could play alone, said Stephen. You don't need a partner, but it'll have to wait until I can get at my clubs. Mrs. Collins frowned. Surely it's better with a friend, she said. That was part of the problem for these people whom she tried to help, their isolation. Maybe, said Stephen, already losing interest in the subject. Well, there's a letter for you in your room, Mrs. Collins said. You'll want to read it and get settled in. Lunch will be ready at one. It's steak and kidney pie. She smiled encouragingly at him. He'd enjoyed her cooking on his other visit. The last released murderer to stay at 33 The Grove had also been a refined sort of man, he had eased his aged mother on her way with sleeping pills. A mercy killing, the newspapers had called it, and his sentence had been a light one. In between, Mrs. Collins had housed boys guilty of breaking and entering, and several older thieves whom she'd tried to set on the right path. It was always worth the effort, and launching Stephen Dawes back into society would be worthwhile too. His had been one of those clean passionelles that the French were so lenient about. No doubt in his case there had been provocation though that was no excuse for murder. Accepting her gentle dismissal, Stephen went upstairs. His room overlooked the churchyard, and on his previous visit, the sound of the clock on the belfry tower tolling the hours had been comforting when, disoriented and apprehensive, he had lain wakeful in the night. He had known then that adjustment to release would not be easy. Frank had kept hoping that Val would relent and let him invite Stephen to Dove House, but as the time came nearer, he evaded the subject, and Stephen had let him off the hook. You can't blame her, Frank, he'd said, and remembered his mother's funeral, to which he had been allowed to go. 
He had no brothers or sisters to be embarrassed by his presence, but his aunt and uncle had not seemed eager to speak to him after the service. He'd been almost glad to return to prison with his escort, who had been quite sympathetic. There was a glass vase holding three late roses on the table in his room. That was unexpected. It was something his mother would have thought of, and Stephen cleared his throat, swallowing. He had shed no tears since his arrest, not even at her death. In order to survive his time in jail, he had tried to drain himself of all emotion. The letter Mrs. Collins had mentioned was propped up beside the vase. It contained a short note from Frank wishing him luck and promising to get in touch as soon as he could. In other words, thought Stephen, without rancor, as soon as he can slip the leash. Enclosed with Frank's note was another envelope addressed to Stephen. On the back was the address of his mother's solicitors. Stephen turned the envelope around in his hand. His mother had left him everything she owned. Apart from the house, he had expected very little. His father had been killed during the war, and she had worked as a physiotherapist to support them both. It had turned out, after his mother's death, that she had taken out a life insurance policy, which she had increased after he was sentenced. The premiums were high and must have made things very hard for her. He slit open the solicitor's envelope. Inside was a smaller one, the Basildon Bond Azure that his mother always used, addressed to him in her rounded, rather girlish hand. A surge of emotion filled Stephen. He turned the envelope over, running his fingers along it where the flap was gummed. She had been dead for so long. It took him several minutes to calm down enough to slit it open. The letter was written on two sheets of paper and was dated six months after he had been sentenced. My dear son, Stephen read, you will read this...